So hopefully you're all joining the, um, the cold weather. I, I mean, I like the cold weather. The only thing is if you have to like wash your hands or anything, suddenly my hands are not going to be cold for a while because you can't get the hot water to come out. Um, but, um, <clears throat> and you're all going to be watching some football later. I realize you're not team in it. Some of us still have teams in it, you know. Sucks to be you guys, but hey. Um, all right, guys. So we're going to be talking about the armor of God, uh, continuing from the study on, and we're uh, I'm focusing on the shield of faith, as I call faith in the midst of ad, uh, adversity. Um, um, let's start with prayer. Father, thank you for this wonderful day, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us all here. Uh, thank you, Lord, for your word and that we could look at it today, Lord, and just uh, help us to hear from you through your word, Lord, and, uh, and, and to take something back today that we can apply to our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Um, so, um, really about adversity, I was gonna, there was a couple of things that kind of came to mind, um, kind of in this idea of faith in the midst of adversity. There was a couple movies out on real-life stories. Um, one is uh, that one, All Saints. I don't know if people have seen that one. It's more of a more recent one, but it's actually a true story about a salesman uh, named Michael Spurlock, um, who you know left his work to become a minister and pastor at church, and it was a church that was dying, and that he was trying to kind of allow them to keep it open, and came up with you know this plan where he felt God wanted. You know, they had a lot of immigrants, and they were like they were going to use skills that people have to you know to plant things and sell crops and it was a way to kind of generate income and he really felt that's what God was calling him to do uh, and it didn't in it didn't work out as he thought it would and I um, there was a line in the um, in, in the um, in the movie where his son asked him well he said uh, why would God ask you to plant the field if he was just going to send the send the storms to destroy it now you got to watch the movie to see how that plays out because actually God used certain things and it was quite a, it's actually an amazing story. I said, watch this. It's an amazing way to see how God worked. Uh, the other one is, uh, they did make the movie The End of the Spear, which is, focuses on Nate Saint, which focuses on the missionaries who went to Ecuador in the 50s. Um, you know, Jim Elliott and there was others. And how they had gone down and they really felt called to, uh, you know, to, to, to you know, take the gospel to a, a, um, a, a tribe that was kind of secluded from everyone else in Ecuador. And uh, so they landed the plane, and they were killed not, I mean, hours within uh, kind of engaging with them. And then, you know, you kind of have to see the story about how things change over time. Um, now, the thing about this is it, one of the great things about ha maybe having, having uh, situations like this and people share these stories with you is we can kind of see in a microcosm on how God works. And we can say, wow, that's really amazing how God took something what seemed to be terrible, and, and we could see how God's plan worked out. The truth is, though, God doesn't always do that. And so we have these stories as, as a way of encouraging our faith, but oftentimes we end up with situations where we don't always really know, and we, God doesn't tell us, and things come. And so, you know, where, where does that leave us, and, and how does that faith come in? And, and really what Paul was talking about, the shield of faith. In fact, I, you know, not to embarrass Shelley, but she had mentioned something last week that kind of tied into this about dealing with things that were difficult or, or, or struggles in life and, and, you know, maintaining your faith through that. And a lot of times that tends to be how things happen to be. We don't always have that picture of what God's doing. So let's look at the Word. 
Um, <laughs> actually, now you reminded me of something. My phone is not on silent either. So I will have to do that. Thank you. See how the Lord works? All right, let's open Ephesians. I'm going to kind of cover the whole passage, but we're really focused on the shield of faith. Um, Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith which, which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is in the word of God, and pray in the Spirit in all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. So today we're going to look at um, the shield of faith, and there are three kind of things that I want to uh, point out or, or, uh, or kind of address, and that is we need to know that our faith is not blind. We need faith to deal with the challenge of life, and we need discernment in applying our faith. So looking at that first one, um, it says... You know, you may find that people ridicule you for your faith. Uh, you may be accused of following a fairy tale or told you are weak, that you can't handle life. In fact, that one always would get to me. You know, those were fighting words, how dare you call me weak, until one day a good friend of mine who uh, loves the Lord, and he's, you know, he's a bright guy, my friend Tom, and he's, you know, he really, you know, he's a guy that I would never consider weak. And I mentioned that to him, and he goes, I remember his words were, well, that's exactly right. I am weak. And I need the Lord. And I, and I realized, it occurred to me that, yeah, it's not a bad thing to admit that I need Jesus. It's not a bad thing. And that I think the truth is I am weak. I can't handle everything. As much as I, I, I like to think I can, I really can't. Um, but you also may be ridiculed because you may be told, well, you're faith, you, know, you have blind faith. I've also heard that faith is a good thing. You see kind of things in life where people will say, you know, uh, you know, that, that, you know, faith is good. You know, the idea of faith is good. You know, as long as you believe in something, you know, that is enough. Um, it doesn't matter whether it's based on fact or, or based on something. Looking at Hebrews uh, 11.1, one, which I have there, it kind of describes what faith is. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and sur- certain of what we see. The psalm will look at, well, yeah, again, to see blind faith. You know, you're just trusting that, you know, this magical fairy in the sky will do something for you. And I, I don't think we do. I think, uh, to me, blind faith is like walking across the street, a busy street without looking and just assuming you're not going to hit. And I realize that kind of works against what people do around here in Baltimore. People do that all the time, but that's a whole different conversation. Um, but I think of the term like trust falls. Like, uh, have you ever heard those things where, you know, you're usually, it's usually a team building event of some sort and they'll have you like, stand up and, you know, you fall backwards where somebody catches you. And the idea, idea is to build trust and to say you need to trust people to catch you. And I, I was thinking about this, and I thought, well, you know, let's say if you take someone like, you know, well, Mark's not here anymore, but Tim's here, or I think Paul's here. You know, they're big guys, right? They used to look at them, you think, and if I was going to fall backwards, you think, 
I could probably trust that they'll catch me. Now, they could mess up, but for the most part, if you look at them, they seem to be healthy. On the other hand, if I was to take my, my son Marshall, who's not here right now, and he's small, and say, you know, he's going to catch me, and most people would think, uh, dude, you need to rethink that. Look at the size of him, right? But if I insisted, you'd say, well, you have blind faith in your son, because he's not going to catch you, and he, he wouldn't. He'd probably run away, actually. <laughs> um, said, much the same way I believe that our faith is based on something, or more specifically, it's based on facts. Let's look at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in, in Luke 16. I hope people can read that. I was wondering if they could uh, when I was doing this. Um, there was a rich man who dressed in purple in fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was, he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in, in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received very good things while Lazarus received bad things. But how he, he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answers then, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, if, even if someone rises from the dead. Now, the, while the point of this parable is, is, is slightly different, the focus is a little different on, uh, on, on issues, it's, one of the, it's always stuck in my mind, though, because it illustrates this point that, that the things to prove God, um, kind of an indirect, it illustrates the point that we have many things to prove that God is worthy of our faith. We have the story of God's people and all that was done for them. We have the story of the prophets and prophecy that has been filled. We have the life of Jesus. We also have, you know, his followers that, you know, went to their death over the idea that the person that they walked around with was raised from their dead. So our faith is, is not blind. It is actually based on facts. It's based on something that occurred and that, we're, you know, and that we, can, we can take comfort in. Um, the second thing is, we need faith to deal with the challenges of life. Uh, in this passage, you know, it's interesting, I'm always hesitant with the whole Roman armor deal because, um, you know, sometimes I think we can get really caught up on, you know, well, let's really look at the Roman soldier and, like, spend a lot of time with that. Now, we haven't really done that. I'm not, I'm not faulting it. I just, my kind of hesitation, because I always feel like, I really think he was just using a teaching tool. You know, much the same way the parables were, you know. And of course, you don't, you don't have a first century Kinko's where he can, like, write this letter off, run off a bunch of copies, and say, here, read this when you have time. He had to come up with a visualization so he can allow people to remember these things and put them into practice. 
However, it is, you know, is it informative to kind of get an idea of what Paul was referencing? So I'm going to give you my little piece on the background of a Roman soldier. Um, and I get this, uh, uh, you know, it's the shield. So we have that, and in in, in I got this from uh, this, uh, this writer, Craig Keener. He says, Roman soldiers were equipped with a large rectangular wooden shields four feet high, the fronts of which were made of leather, leather before battles in which flaming arrows might be fired, the leather would be wetted to quench any fiery darts launched at them. After Roman legionnaires closed ranks, the front row holding shields forward and those behind them holding shields above them, they were virtually uh, invulnerable to the attack of flaming arrows. So we have that imagery of what Paul may have been addressing. And so there's a nice little picture. You kind of see the shield. Although that one actually looks not quite four feet, although unless that's a really tall dude. Um, so... That's our Roman soldiers. So, but we also have Paul's words here and what he was really kind of getting at within this passage. And it's really taken beforehand in like verses 10. It says, be, finally, be strong in the Lord in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may stand your ground after you have done everything to stand. In addition, in all this, take up the shield of faith that you might extinguish the flaming arrows. So this idea is that the faith is going to be something that we we don't allow the devil to, to impact us in a negative way. We're going to protect ourselves. The idea is that we need to use our faith like the Roman soldiers to shield or fend off the attacks of the devil. Now, how does the devil attack us? Uh, a great example is actually from Jesus' life when he was tempted in, in Luke 4. And he's tempted three different ways in that passage, what I was going to look at, is that the first thing is, is that what I call stumbling in our faith, kind of this first attack. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness without food, and then the devil decides to attack Jesus, who had probably been pretty hungry, I'm guessing. Um, and so he kind of attacks him on that level, and it says here, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live by bread alone. That was not the time for him to eat even though he probably could have done. Here the devil is appealing to Jesus' most basic needs. For us, the temptation is to give in to our most basic needs, you know, in a sinful way. Things like sexual immorality, lust, responding in anger, lying, stealing, etc. Kind of some examples, which I'm not exactly excited to share, or actually one of these I'm not excited to share. Uh, one of them is, uh, for those who were, like me, who were big fans of Ravi Zacharias, um, uh, you know, and he's things have quite changed since he passed away as we've learned some things about his life. And I actually read through all of that stuff in pretty detail because he was a fan. I was a huge fan. But one of the things that kind of came out is that he said to women that things that happened that, you know, that they were his, you know, that they were his, his prize or his, 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 you know, for all of his hard work. It was, was kind of the language. And I thought, now if that being true, that the devil had convinced them that he deserved something that he didn't deserve. And that can happen. It can happen in our lives. You work hard. I deserve this. Uh, another one is, is um, David, David and Bathsheba. 
We have the story from um, 2 Samuel 11. You know, it was late in the night. He was, should have been out with, you know, forces out doing this. He was not. He was back at the castle, walking around. Maybe he was bored. Maybe he couldn't sleep. Anybody that knows how temptation is, is it's always worse as you get farther in the day. As you are more tired, your resistance goes down. Anybody that's dealt with trying to lose weight, you know that that's a challenge as you get later. I know we talked about it in our in our groups on Monday, and that as you, you know, some, there's a line actually you were sharing the other day is that sometimes when you're when you're uh, when you're tempted to eat, sometimes it's better just to go to bed because it, you know your resistance is down, and that's the story of David. His resistance was down, and he's wandering around, and I'm sure he convinced himself that he had a right. I'm the king. I don't know. I don't know what went through his head. I don't know if we really have that. But it was there, and it was before him, and that temptation come. His shield was not up. His shield was down. Um, So we have a couple verses on this that I'd like to share. Galatians 5.19, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. Colossians 3.5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee the evil desires of youth and and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So these are the types of sins that cause us to stumble in our faith. They come along and, and, and we fall to it and, and things don't go well and, and we struggle and it might impact our, our, our ability to reach other people or people to take us seriously anymore. The second one is, the second is, is what I call the turning our back on the faith. Here we have the passage from Luke with, uh, with the devil again engaging Jesus. The devil led him to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to them, I will give you all, your, all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want. So if you worship me, it will be yours. Jesus answered, it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil offered Jesus fame and glory uh, if he will worship the devil and turn his back on the Father. For us, this is when we are tempted to respond in a simple way to gain fame, glory, and power. Where do we see this? We see this in Judas, you know, or the person of Judas, you know, who, tur- who gave, you know, who turned his back on Jesus, what, for 30 pieces of silver, right? Um, we are tempted to, you know, to turn our back on God because we want something. We want it more than we want to serve the Lord. First um, Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money and have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So I always like to point out, it wasn't, money's not wrong. Having money's not wrong. It's the love of money. It's that pursuit. It's that I must have it more than anything else. James 4, 7, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So this, these are the types of sin, as I call, is cause us to turn our back on God. Before what, I, I, I don't know why I put this down, I said for the golden apple. Um, and then I kept thinking, isn't that something in mythology? And then I was like, I'm not sure, but it just sounded good. We turn our back on God because we want it. We want those things out there. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing is, I think is actually the toughest one, um, it's, it's the things that cause us to lose our faith. 
Luke 4, 9 through 12, it says here, The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their, in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone, Jesus answered. It says, do not put the Lord your God to test. Here, the devil is challenging Jesus' understanding of God. While God would have protected him, he's challenging his understanding for the way God works and what God wanted from him. He's trying to, um, to get Jesus to use an incorrect assumption about God. Uh, for this, this is something that happens when the challenges of life come to us and we don't understand why. Um, you know, our understanding of God, to me, this is the most difficult and challenging temptation because we have all have had incorrect assumptions. We probably still do. The goal in life is to get to know God so we can kind of get rid of those. But we have incorrect assumptions. So when things don't go as we expect, they don't fit in that line of how we assume God is supposed to act. It creates a crisis of faith for us. And we, we wonder, like, where is God? And is God real? And, you know... Was it a lie? And I, I think examples of this is, um, one is snake handlers. Um, you know, it's kind of actually it's big in some parts of this country. They take the last part of Mark seriously that says, you know, uh, you know believers will be able to take snake, you know, snakes and be bitten and not die. And they take that literally so you have people reaching in. Well, I, I kind of equate that with, with the idea of jumping off the roof. You know, like God will save Jesus. It's the same thing. Well, you know, even if it is true, even if we should take that literally, I don't think we're supposed to jump in a pit with deadly snakes, all right? Um, another is the Holocaust. Um, now, this is kind of somewhat separate from, from you know, Christians. It, you know, it has to do you know, more with Jews themselves. We're God, they're God's chosen people. But the Holocaust was a little bit of a challenge because it was so bad. And it did question people to start to say, well, wait a minute. Yeah, I know, you know, as a Jew, we're God's chosen people and things don't always, you know, things are difficult, but this is so bad. It kind of pushed beyond the understanding of, uh, that they may have had for God. In fact, there's an interesting line from uh, that movie, The Hiding Place, that, you know, that was based on the book by Corey Tin Boom, which, you know, as you can know, is I didn't read the book, I watched the movie because that's my life. I don't read the books, I watch the movies, right? Um, but there's an interesting line, and her sister's in the concentration camp and going on about Jesus, and Jesus is love, and all this other things, and a woman just directly challenges her, and she's like, in her face, and she says, look at my hands, look at my hands, because I'm a, I think she was a pianist or violinist, she, she was a concert musician, you know, and going on, look at it, you know, how can a loving God allow this to happen? And her response to her was, either God doesn't care or he's impotent. And why is that? Because her understanding of God was wrong. Another one is, is that um, I always like to use this story. My, I, somebody I went to, Dr. Cruz, who was the president there, and he shared a story that, you know, I heard a lot about his life. And one was, is he's been, he had been in ministry since he was age 17. And I probably shared a little bit of this in other parts. But he had been asked at his age 17 to pastor a church, which is kind of amazing. Now, by the time I met him, you know, he'd been through ministry many years. He's, he'd got a doctorate of ministry by that point. Um, but his, one of his children, his daughter in particular, struggled with mental illness and had numerous times tried to commit suicide. And eventually, as they, which I always hate saying this, but was successful um, at age 35. And I always, I, I always wish I'd kind of gone back to him and asked him, 
how he responded to that. I never did. But I always kind of would speculate is someone like that could take the position like, Lord, look what I've done. I have worked since I was 17 in your ministry, and this is what you've given me. I did not expect this. And the challenge is that if you get to that point, it means that you're not, your understanding of how God functions is flawed because you have, that happens. Now, if you're going to ask me why that happens, I'm not God. That's probably a conversation you need to have with him. And God may tell you and God may not tell you, but it is still part of how God functions. And we have to understand that. Um, When considering the aspects of this armor, this last temptation is the one that comes to mind the most for me. You know, when Paul talks about the flaming arrows as a direct attack, these are the times I think that are the most difficult because he really wants to disrupt your faith. He wants to take your faith away. It's one thing to cause you to stumble. It's another thing to completely cause you to turn your back and leave God completely. Um, Now, if we're not careful... Um, in situations like this, we may, be, we may find ourselves walking away from God. And so how do we deal with this? Um, I would, you know, um, it really kind of leads back to my last point, which is we need discernment in applying our faith. We need to try to learn how God functions. What is God's ways? Um, you know, in the passage of the temptation of Jesus, people will often point out that, you know, he used scripture to combat the devil, which is great, but you have to know how to use that scripture and you know how to apply it. Because the truth is, is that when Jesus was hungry, who would tell him like, well, you, you know, you really shouldn't eat now. But he understood at that moment that it wasn't time to eat. When the devil took him to the top of the, I'm sure God would have saved him if he jumped off, but that was not the time. That was not God's way of functioning. That was not how to respond. So he not only knew the scripture, he knew when and where to apply it. And this is something that we have to do. That's why we have to dig into scripture and read the full, read it all. It's not just the New Testament about, because sometimes I know as Christians we can get really focused on the New Testament on how to live, is we read the Old Testament to figure out how God functions. We learn about God in the Old Testament. How did God respond? How did he not respond? Why didn't he respond here, but he responded here? And that's how we learn how God functions, so that we can really develop a full picture of how he, how he acts. Um, take, for a, um, take, for example, a couple of uh, verses, which I really hate. I'm actually throwing out more questions in people's heads than answers. But when I always think of like, you know, Philippians 4, it says, and my God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches. So. I need to learn what needs met. When I pray for things and God doesn't give it to me, I need to understand why God is not giving that to me, you know, how that doesn't fit in my needs. Um, and another one is, is that this passage of, of Luke, he says, for everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door will be open. Which of your fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father in heaven gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. You know, again, you know, a lot of his followers died terrible deaths. So you can go, well, how is that good? Well, it does, it is good. And I, you know, that's a hard thing to say when somebody dies, this is good, but it is good. It's part of God's plan. And one of the things that, um, um, so what am I, sorry, I lost my train of thought. So, um, <clears throat> So one of the things is that, um, is that I think we need to see God from the bigger picture. So, okay, let me go. Right. <laughs> we, need to, we need to know the extent to what, um, okay. 
And so the Bible teaches us that we need to learn to be discerning. Sorry, I lost my train of thought there. Proverbs 10, says, Wisdom is found on the lips of the discerning, but the rod is for the back of those who lack judgment. The challenge is, is that people, we need to learn how to understand God. And, and I, you know, I come, some of the things that I've shared with you, I come from a very Pentecostal world, and, you know, I see a lot of amazing things. But one of the things that I've always made me also very, 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 very cautious is, you know, when is the Lord really speaking to us? You know, you, it's very common in that world to hear, well, God told me. And as I kind of went along is that I have met people, a very few people, by the way, that I know when they said God told me, I know that they, they listen and God talks to them and they have a special communication with God and I should do there are legions of people when they tell me God told me this that, that my eyes will gloss over and go, yeah, I'm sure that the Lord told you that. And then, you know, you don't want to do, you don't always want to respond in that way, but you always want to say, but how do you know? Um, in fact, it's, sometimes it's in common in, the, in that world to have people, and I know that in the missionary field where you have somebody to walk up to somebody and go, well, you know, the Lord told me that, I'm, that we're supposed to get married. And the girl responds, um, and your name is? It's not always like that, but honestly, I, I, I actually had a story, and I'm not going to share the whole story because I think it's embarrassing for the person, but where she was, got engaged to a missionary, and, and he said to her, you know, I think God, and I, my response to her is, well, how did you know? I said, wouldn't God have somehow told you that too? And the person's response was more akin to the person. Well, you know, they were from, you know, they were from a certain country and they were a certain type of person, so I assumed they were correct. And so I thought that was really funny until I realized they were serious. So, um, but what it tells me too is that we have to be very discerning. We need to be discerning how God functions. And we also need to be discerning on how God acts, not just in the individual time, but how does God act on the big picture, on the big stage? Um, so um, one of the things that I may have met, I mentioned before is that, um, I suppose last time I was preaching, is that um, I've been working my way through um, Isaiah. And um, there's a couple of things that have really kind of been jumping out to, out to me, um, is that and there's really two things I kind of want to conclude on that, that, that I've learned from this that, that is really stuck in my head. Um, as, I, as I've been working my through, there are, uh, and I guess I'll just go to the first one here. Um, we have faith in God because of what he is doing. Um, this is kind of the bigger picture. Like, and that's the one thing that's kind of jumped out at me in Isaiah is that I get so caught up on the, in the individual stuff. Of, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with seeking God and, and crying out to him. There's absolutely nothing wrong. And I think God loves us and, and wants to meet her. And, and sometimes God really meets us in miraculous ways. That's okay. But I can get so focused on that all the time. You know, and where is God doing? Where is God moving in my life? Where is, that I forget that there's this bigger, longer track of what God is doing. That, I, that when I kind of look from it, I go, wow. Maybe what I'm so focused on isn't so important as I think it is, you know? Maybe it really isn't. Maybe, you know, and, and sometimes we can get really wound up on things. You know, should I buy a house? Should I buy a car? You know, maybe I should buy the blue house. Maybe I should buy the green house. And, um, and then I started thinking, yeah, but does God really, is that, not that God doesn't care. It's just like on the grand scheme of things, does God think, oh, you should have bought the greenhouse. I'm, you know, it's all messed up now. My plans are ruined, Right. And sometimes I think, yes, we should pray, we should use wisdom, we should do all those things, but also at 